so carried away singing the carol. I forgot to put the microphone on. Sorry about that. Luke chapter 1, please. chapter 1, and uh, let's just read verse 57, and then we'll have a word of prayer. Luke 1. And Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this night. We thank you for how great a God you are. We thank you for how much you loved us to send your son to die for us. We thank you, Father God, for your word. We thank you for the testimony of your word to the truth of how much you cared for us and sought us to redeem us. And we pray that, Father, tonight as we look into your word, that we would indeed be blessed by it, that, Lord, we would receive from you that which you would have for us. I pray that, Lord, you'd give me wisdom, that you'd use me, that I would be able to speak your truth according to your glory. Father God, we might receive from you that which you'd have for us. Lord, minister to us tonight through your word. And bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, famous English minister by the name of Isaac Watts was a hymn writer and a theologian. During his lifetime, he composed some 750 hymns. His works include famous hymns like When I Survey the Wondrous Cross and Our God, Our Help in Ages Past. Isaac Watts was also a genius. At the age of four, he learned Latin. At the age of nine, he learned Greek. At the age of 11, he learned French. and the age of 13, Old Hebrew. Unfortunately, though, for Isaac, for all of his talents, he was not good-looking. His one chance at love came, where, came and went when a young lady named Elizabeth Singer, who fell in love with him sight unseen through his published poems. Elizabeth was so taken with this man who could write so deeply and so passionately that she threw caution to the wind and in a letter asked him to marry her. But when they finally met, she retracted her offer. She later wrote that Isaac Watts was only five feet tall, with a shallow face, hooked nose, prominent cheekbones, small eyes, and a death-like color. She said, I admired the jewel, but not the cassock that contained it. <laughs> you feel sorry for the guy, don't you? <laughs> I read that this week, I thought, wow. <laughs> anyway, Isaac was never married. Okay, that was his one chance at uh, marrying, and he never married. But you know what Isaac Watts did do was he spent his life focused on the glory of God. In 1719, Isaac Watts published a poetic work based upon Psalm 98. It would go on to become one of what as many as considered to be the greatest Christmas hymn of all time. Joy to the world. You know, great music has always been associated with Christmas. And while we're familiar with many of the popular Christmas carols, such as Joy to the World, I think it would be true to say that we're not all that familiar 
with the biblical songs of Christmas. You know, we are familiar with the events of Christmas, aren't we? The angels, the shepherds, the virgin birth, and the baby. But you know, all those events are so stupendous that they result in the Bible in an outburst of singing. Singing that describes the impact that Jesus Christ would have upon the world. You know, songs come and go, but there are four songs of Christmas that have endured some 2,000 years. And Zacharias, remember we were looking at the story of Zacharias in Luke chapter 1, Zacharias composed the first Christmas song on the Christmas playlist, if you like, in Luke chapter 1, verses 68 to 79. In Latin, the song is named Benedictus, after the first word of the song, Blessed, look in verse 68, it says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. The song is called Blessed, Benedictus. And so firstly tonight, as we consider the song, this song, this Christmas song of Zacharias, this Benedictus, let me first of all, let's have a look at the background of this Christmas song. And the background starts in verse 57, which I read earlier, down to verse 67 of this passage. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 57, we learn that Elizabeth came to full term and that she, in her pregnancy, and that she gave birth to the son that God had promised her back early in this chapter when the angel appeared unto Zacharias when he was doing his duty in the temple and told him that his prayers had been answered and he would have a son. In verse 57, we find that that promise now is fulfilled and Elizabeth gives birth to a son just as God had promised. Several women turned up on the eighth day after the birth when the child was due to be circumcised, and they determined to name the, son, the child Zacharias Jr. Look in verse 58. And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. Elizabeth, however, tells the women that his name was supposed to be John. Verse 60 says, uh, uh, And uh, his mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John. And they said unto her, There is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. This was an unusual request to call this child John because there was no one in the family of Zacharias and Elizabeth whose name was John. Her parents' names weren't John, obviously. If her father wasn't John, his father wasn't John. The grandfather wasn't John on either side of the family. As far as the, these relatives and these friends knew, there was no one in the family called John. So why would you call this child John? The normal thing to do is to call him Zacharias, Jr., after his father. But she says, no, his name is to be John. So now what they do is they question Zacharias about it. And he steps in and he lets everybody know that the boy's name is indeed to be called John, verse 62. And there are signs to his father how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing table and wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marveled all. And now when he communicates this, when he tells them that the son's name is to be John, his tongue is loosed, 
and he's able to speak. And what happens is he breaks forth in a song of praise to God. Verse 64, And his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue loosed, and he spake and praised God. And we're told that being filled with the Holy Ghost in verse 67, he prophesied, saying, Blessed be God. Notice what he says in verse 67. He says, and his, uh, and his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost, prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And what we have from verse 67 onwards is this Christmas song of Zacharias, this Benedictus. Zacharias now bursts into praise. In other words, Zacharias tells the people, in fact, tells you and I, that there is much to, be pra much to praise God for at this time of the year. There's much to give thanks for. It's interesting that Zacharias doesn't give thanks for John. Zacharias gives thanks for the person that John is going to prepare the way for. He gives thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ. And each line in this magnificent song celebrates the fact that God has at long last come to redeem his people. This is a redemption song. This is about our Savior. He's not rejoicing about his son. He's rejoicing about the Savior that is about to come. And you and I need to remember that Christmas is about praising God. You know, Christmas is about proclaiming that the Savior's come. It's about telling the story that Christ the Savior is born. That Jesus Christ is born to die on the cross of Calvary that we might have salvation. We ought to praise God at this time of the year. Now that's the background to the song. And I wanted to give you that so you know where we are, that I didn't miss anything in the story here before we actually look at the Christmas song itself. And so secondly tonight, let's consider with, consider with me the words of the Christmas song, the words of this Benedictus in verses 68 to 79. In verse 68 we read, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. In this song that Zacharias now sings, as he presents praise to Almighty God, he gives to us three reasons why God ought to be praised. And the first reason he gives us here in verse 68 is because he has redeemed us. We need to praise God because he redeemed us. Verse 68 again, Blessed be the God of Israel, for he hath revisited and redeemed his people. The word visited here is an interesting word because this means more than just to drop in. It's not, you know, when you and I think of somebody visiting, we think of somebody just dropping in, you know, passing by, saw you light on, just dropped in, you know. They visited, okay, but that's not what this word means. That, it's not the idea of just dropping in on somebody. The word visit here has the idea of going with a desire to do something, visiting with a purpose. Now, the incarnation... When Jesus Christ left heaven's glory and came, became a man, when he came to earth, he, God visited us in the person of Jesus Christ. And he visited us with a purpose. And that purpose was that he would die on the cross of Calvary that we might be saved. Go with me to Philippians chapter 2, please. Philippians chapter 2. And verse 6. 
verse 5, sorry. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in the flesh of man, he humbled himself and became a being unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus Christ left heaven's glory, he humbled himself, he became a man, and in becoming a man, what he did was he died upon the cross of Calvary for you and I. When God visited us at the person of Jesus Christ, he visited for a purpose. And let's never forget that he chose to visit you and I. God chose to send his son. His son chose to come to earth to die in our place. And when he came, when he chose to visit he also chose to redeem us. That's what verse 68 says. For he hath visited, uh, visited and redeemed his people. He chose to leave heaven's glory, to come to earth for a purpose, to die on the cross of Calvary, so that you and I might be redeemed. Of course, as we all know, the idea of redeemed is that he paid the ransom price for our salvation. The word redeem was often used in Bible times with reference to the price that was paid to deliver a captive taken in war. Somebody had been captured in war and a ransom was paid to free that person from captivity. That's the word here. Now the picture, as one commentator put it, is this. When mankind was sold into slavery to sin and therefore unable to help himself, God paid the ultimate price. He gave himself. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, the second member of the Godhead, left heaven's glory, became a man, to die upon the cross of Calvary, to shed his blood, that he might pay the ransom price, the redemption price, for you and for me. He gave himself for us. And the redemption price, of course, was his shed blood. As first Peter tells us, we're not redeemed with corruptible things of silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Christ came to redeem us, to pay our redemption, pay for our redemption, so that you and I might be saved from the presence of sin and also the penalty of sin and the power of sin. No wonder Zacharias is bursting forth in praise. He's bursting forth in praise and the prospect that with the coming of his son, the Messiah was about to be announced. Christ was about to come. And in the coming of, the sa of Christ, the Savior was about to be born in order that you and I might be redeemed, set free from the penalty and the power of sin. You know, the truth is that you and I had deserted God. You and I were in enmity with God. You and I were dead in trespasses and sins. Romans 3 tells us there's none that seeketh after God, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. But God sent His Son to redeem us. And if you and I, particularly if you know the Savior tonight, if you and I cannot get excited this time of the year about the fact that God sent His Son to redeem us, then there's something wrong with it, isn't there? Because this is a glorious time of the year. I love Christmas. I love preaching about Christmas because it's an easy subject to preach on. It's such a wonderful story. Jesus Christ came, visited us, 
so that he might redeem us. We don't deserve God's love. Nor do we deserve to be redeemed. But praise God, he loved us enough to send his son to purchase our redemption to redeem us. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. You know, one commentator said this, he said, we spend our lives in pursuit of every lover that comes along, but in his infinite love, God purchased us for himself. In his infinite love, God purchased us for himself. No wonder Zacharias praised God. Because Jesus Christ came to redeem us. You know, I love that old hymn that we sing, which explains this very truth that Zacharias is singing about. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child and forever I am. We've got to praise Him for His redeemed us. Secondly, Zacharias praised the Lord not only because God visited and redeemed Him, but secondly, we ought to praise him for he raised up a horn of salvation. Look at verse 69. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He raised up a horn of salvation. This is the second reason why Zacharias praises God. And it's the second reason why you and I ought to praise God at this time of the year. Because God has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David. Now the horn of course here is not on the Jesus Christ. The whole context, the whole theme of this song of Zacharias is Jesus Christ. He's the central figure of it. He's the one who visited us. He's the one who redeemed us. And now he is the horn of salvation out of the house of David. The figure here of a horn alludes to the horns of a beast that are used for defense and protection and even to enhance their beauty. And when the word salvation, which it is here, is connected, as is here with the word horn, it speaks of power and strength. It says, and he has raised up an horn of salvation. This speaks of power and strength. He's a mighty redeemer. He's a mighty savior. He can save, for he is able to deliver us. 2 Corinthians 1.10 says, Who hath delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust he will yet deliver us. He's a great deliverer. You see, he has the power to save. He's the horn of salvation. He has the power. He has the strength to save you and I. He's not weak. He's not hindered in any way. There's no part of purchasing our salvation is beyond his ability. This is the thing that Zacharias is testifying to. He's saying the Savior that's coming to redeem us is the all-powerful Redeemer. He's the all-powerful Savior. There's nothing that in us that he cannot do to save us. There's nothing hindering our salvation. There's nothing hindering him achieving his task for you and I of dying in our place. Nothing required for our salvation is going to be beyond his ability. Zacharias is so thankful. He's waited for this day, for the Messiah to come, and he's about now ready to arrive. 
And Zacharias praises the fact that he has a mighty Savior. The word salvation in verse 69, and then in verse 71 where it's repeated, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. The word salvation in these two verses carries the idea of health and soundness. I'm coming to explain it this way. No matter what the condition of the captives, their Redeemer brings spiritual soundness. He's able to restore them to spirit, special relation with God. All who flee to Him are safe. No matter the condition of the captive, no matter the condition of the sinner, no matter what state we find ourselves in before we're saved, no matter the state and the condition of the sinner, the Redeemer has the power to bring spiritual soundness, to restore us to a special relationship with God. And all who trust in Him are safe. What Zacharias is declaring here is that nobody stands outside of the parameters of salvation. All can be saved. That whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. There is nobody that stands outside of the power of the Savior. He's the horn of our salvation. He has the power to save. He has the power to save us because of His shed blood. And He will forgive all who will believe in Him. Look in Colossians, please. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12. It says, Giving thanks unto the Father, who hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Through His blood, you and I have been redeemed. Through His blood, He is able to save all who call upon Him. In verses 70 and 71, we're told that He would save Israel from their enemies. He says, And He spake by the mouth of His holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all that hate us. Zacharias points to the fact the Messiah one day is going to give victory nationally to the nation of Israel. But when we apply that to you and I, in his death he has saved us from our enemies. That's what he says. He says that spoken by the holy prophets, which since the world began, that he would save us from our enemies, from the hand of all that hate us. And for you and I, he saves us from our enemies. And that means that in his death, Christ has saved us from sin, which wars against our soul. Christ has saved us from Satan, the avowed adversary of mankind. Through his death, Christ has saved us from a world which has always been an enmity with Jesus Christ. Through his death, Jesus Christ has saved us from death, the last enemy to be destroyed. He has the power to save, and he will save all who believe. That's a glorious truth. Zacharias is singing 
about our Savior. He's singing about our salvation. He's singing about how powerful our God is. He's able to save. Remember what the angel said to uh, Joseph when he came to tell Joseph it was okay to marry Mary in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21? He said, And she shall bring forth the Son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ came as our Redeemer to purchase our redemption. He visited us to pay the ransom price with his blood that you and I might be saved so that you and I might have our sins forgiven. We might have victory over our enemy, the devil, and sin and death. It's worth noting that verses 68 and 69 are in the past tense in this passage. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and he hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. It's in the past tense. That's interesting, but Christ has not even been born yet. Zacharias, writing this singing this prophetic song, is talking about something that has not yet happened as though it's already complete. And the reason he's doing that is because it tells us that God's work of redemption had been worked out long before the world was even created. Isn't that what Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 tells us? It tells us that Jesus Christ is the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. These truths that Zechariah is, is singing about are truths that in the mind of God have already been completed. Even though Christ has not yet come in this passage, in the mind of God it is finished. Christ has already died. Christ has already been born. Christ has already died. Salvation has already been purchased. Because God has promised it. This was God's eternal plan to save you and me. Note also that this Redeemer came from the house of David. Verse 69, And he raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. That's significant. Because God had promised that the Savior would be a Jew from the tribe of Judah from the family of David, and that he would be born in David's city, Bethlehem. And this was a fulfillment of God's promise. And what we see here yet again is that God keeps his promises. God is a covenant-keeping God. And that's what verse 72 tells us. It tells us that Jesus Christ came, God did all this to perform the mercy promise to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. All that Zacharias is singing about, prophesying about, is all a fulfillment of a promise that God made to Israel's fathers, particularly to Abraham. And in doing what he's doing, in sending Jesus Christ, who is about to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, of the house of David, in the city of David, all of this is according to God's mercy and according to God's holy 
covenant. God keeps his covenants. And you and I indeed have much to praise God for every day of the year, but we have a much to praise God for at Christmas time because he's redeemed us by his blood and he's saved us by his mighty power. Why? Because of his mercy and his covenants. In verse 73, it says this, the oath which is swear to our father Abraham. This covenant, this merciful promise that he made to Israel's fathers to remember his covenant was an oath that he swore to Abraham. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, that God swore this oath by himself because there was no other, no greater by which he could swear. You know, when we go to a court of law, we put up our hand, and uh, if you've been to court, you put up your hand, you put your hand in the Bible and say, you swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. We swear by the Bible and swear by God because they're a greater authority than we are. But God, we're told in Hebrews chapter 6, swore an oath by himself because there is no greater than God. And the oath that he swore, he swore to Abraham. And the Abrahamic oath, the Abrahamic covenant was that God would bless Abraham and his posterity. And in his posterity, in the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. God made an oath to Abraham that Abraham would have a son. That son would be Isaac. And in his son and all of the seed of his son, one day a Savior would come to die for the sins of mankind. God made that promise to Abraham and God kept that promise here in Bethlehem. We have a covenant-keeping God. Aren't you glad God keeps his promises? Aren't you glad that what God promised to Adam and Eve back in the garden, when he said that the seed of the woman would, bruise the, would crush the head of Satan and Satan would bruise his heel, aren't you glad that he promised back there, after Adam and Eve sinned, that God would send a Savior? Aren't you glad that he reaffirmed that promise to Abraham? That God reaffirmed the promise to Isaac and to Jacob and, and so on, to Joseph and on through the Israelites. Aren't you glad that God is a covenant-keeping God and He kept His promise so that you and I one day could look into the Bible. We could realize we're sinners before Holy God and realize that God had kept His promise. Jesus Christ came and died on the cross of Calvary. He visited us that He might redeem us so that He might be the powerful Savior that we needed so that you and I might have our sins forgiven. And the result of this victory, this result of this promise that was now being fulfilled in the coming of Messiah, is that you and I have freedom to serve. Look in verse 74. That he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. He redeemed us, so now we're free to serve him. He redeemed us to give us freedom to serve him. One commentator said, one principal end of deliverance from spiritual enemies by Christ is the service of God. 
Nothing lays a greater obligation on man to serve the Lord and glorify Him than redemption by Christ. Nor is there anything that makes men more zealous of good works. You know, the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, the redemption that is ours because of His sacrifice, frees you and I up to serve Him. He sets us free not to do our own will. He didn't save you and I so that you and I could go about doing our own will. He saved you and I so that we could do His will. Because if we did our own will, then we'd be in bondage. He set us free to do His will so that we might enjoy His freedom. Notice what it says in verse 75. In holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our life. God wants you and I to understand that He has set us free. And freedom is found in serving Him. Freedom is not found in you and I doing our own will. Freedom is not found in you and I doing what we want. Freedom is not found in you and I doing what we think is best for us. Genuine freedom is found in submitting to Him, surrendering to the Savior and asking what His will is. And when you and I find His will for our lives, then we have genuine freedom. And you and I will be able to live in holiness and righteousness all the days of our life. God has set us free to serve Him. And that's a glorious truth. We were in bondage to sin. You and I were in the slave market. Sin. We had the chains of sin about us. But at salvation, we've been set free. He broke the chains of bondage. He set us free. He took us into His dear kingdom. And now He gives us the freedom to serve Him all the days of our life. We ought to praise Him for He's redeemed us. And we ought to serve Him because He's delivered us from the penalty and power of sin. We ought to praise Him for our redemption. We ought to praise Him for our salvation. And thirdly, along with Zacharias, we ought to praise Him because of the remission of sins. Look in verse 76. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, Thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. He's, in this verse he's talking about John. To give knowledge of salvation unto the people by the remission of sins through the tender mercies of our God whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the only verse of the whole of this song that has reference to his son is verse 76, where he says, And thou, child, John the Baptist, shall be called the prophet of the highest. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And the reason he's going to be a prophet of the highest is because he's going to go before the face of the Lord, go before the face of Messiah, to prepare his ways. He's a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. He's the one who's going to say, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. It's John. Is going to come. And what's he going to do? Verse 77, he's going to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Christ is going to come. 
give knowledge of salvation and the remission of sins. The word remission here in verse 77 means to send away, to dismiss. The idea is there's a cancelling of the debt here. It's like the song says, you know, the old account was settled long ago. What we have here at, in salvation, Christ visited us to pay the ransom price for us that you and I might be saved. And we're saved, when we're saved, we have our sins remitted. In other words, salvation is possible because of the forgiveness of sins. The word remission means to forgive. We've had our sins forgiven. We are redeemed. He's paid the redemption price. We have a mighty Savior who saves all who call upon Him for salvation and sets us free from bondage to serve Him. And it's all possible because in Christ Jesus, your sins and my sins are forgiven. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. You know, all of us were in debt to God because we'd all broken His law. We'd failed to live up to His righteous standard. We all know this. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But Jesus Christ visited us from glory with a purpose. And that purpose was to pay the debt that we owed for our sin by dying on the cross of Calvary. And now it's possible for you and I to know salvation because of the forgiveness of sins. Notice what it says in verse 77. To give knowledge, to know to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. The word knowledge there is to know by experience. So the verse is saying it's now possible that through faith you and I can know by experience that you and I can experience salvation because our sins are forgiven. To give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of sins. Note also that salvation is available through God's tender mercies. Look at verse 78. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. Through the tender mercy of our God. That's why we're forgiven. It's because of God's mercy. God does not give to you and I what we deserve because he's a merciful God. Because of his tender mercies, you and I have experienced salvation and the forgiveness of sins because we have a merciful God. And the source and spring of our pardon is the free grace and abundant mercy of God, one commentator said. It was for our salvation that the day spring from heaven hath visited us. That's the rest of that verse. It says... Through the tender mercy of our God, verse 78, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. The day spring from heaven hath visited us. The day spring, of course, is Jesus Christ. People were sitting in darkness. 
death and distress gripped men and mankind when Jesus came. But he brought light and peace. He is the day spring that visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Look with me in John chapter 1, if you would, please. John chapter 1 and verse 4. Talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended not. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Jesus Christ is the light and life of men. First John chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1 tell the same story. John chapter 1 tells it from the Apostle John's perspective, looking at John the Baptist and his declaration about who Christ was. Here, Zacharias looks forward to the day when Christ will come and he makes the same declaration. He says, the day spring has visited us. Why? To give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet out of the way of peace, to lead us into peace. Christ is the light of the world. He would shine in, on those living in darkness Shine upon those who are living in the shadow of death so they might have peace. You know, many people this Christmas will be living without hope. Even more people will be living this Christmas without eternal hope. They're living in spiritual darkness. As one commentator said, they're plodding along enjoying life and they're ignorant of what awaits after death. They're living in the shadow of death. They're living in the shadow of eternal death, eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. And Jesus Christ visited us from heaven so that he might pay the ransom price upon the cross of Calvary with his own blood so that he might be a mighty savior so that we might experience the forgiveness of sins and be led out of darkness into his glorious light. We might experience his mercy, his grace, peace, and have hope. Christmas is all about the Prince of Peace. It's all about the coming of a Savior. It's all about God leaving heaven's glory, coming down to earth and visiting with us that he might purchase our redemption so that you and I might dwell in the light of the knowledge that our great Savior has forgiven us through faith in him and his finished work upon Calvary. The old priest Zacharias Hadn't said anything for nine months. But he certainly made up for it, didn't he? When his tongue was loosed, his silence was ended, 
He sang this song of praise to God, and what a song. I guess he'd had nine months to think about this, hadn't he? He'd had nine months where he couldn't speak. There seems to be an indication here too, because it says they made signs to him, asking him what the name of his son should be, that somehow maybe he's deaf too. But at the very least, he's not been able to speak. And for nine months, he's been able to think upon what it is that John the Baptist is going to do. And what he's going to do is he's going to declare the coming of a Savior. No wonder when the psalms is broken, his tongue sprang forth in praise to God. Now think about it. Zacharias didn't even know Jesus Christ yet. He hadn't been born. And yet he spends all these verses praising a Savior which has not yet been born. Beloved, we know so much more about Jesus than Zacharias did. Surely there should be nothing that should stop you and I from praising him. You know, God calls upon sinners today to believe the good news to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And all of us who have believed the good news, all of us who have been saved, ought to praise Him. It's not enough for us to say that Jesus is a Savior, or even that He is the Savior. Because, beloved, if we know Jesus Christ is our Savior, then He is our Savior. And therefore, like Zacharias, we should rejoice. Let's this Christmas rejoice because he has redeemed us, he saved us, and he's forgiven us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you this night for this Christmas song. We thank you, Father God, that when Zacharias finally was able to speak again, the words that he spoke are such wonderful words about a visiting Savior who came for the purpose of dying upon the cross of Calvary to pay the ransom price that we might be redeemed. To pay the ransom price that he might be a mighty, powerful Savior so that we might have our sins forgiven we might experience mercy and grace and peace and hope. Father, we thank you that we are tonight able to be redeemed, saved and forgiven. Will there be anybody here tonight who doesn't know you as their Savior? You pray tonight, Father God, you would work in their hearts. You would convict them, Father God, of the knowledge that Jesus Christ came for them and that they by faith would trust in him even this night. And Lord, those of us who are saved, may we this Christmas like Zacharias birth forth in praise because of our Savior. Let us know as we close and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.